So Ryan's mentioned that it, it would have been, you would have been on another planet, I think, if you uh, didn't recognise and know that yesterday was a big day for us as a country. The king was coronated, the queen was coronated, I think that's right. And, um, you know, Ryan's rightly reminded us that despite what you think of the king, despite what you think of the royal family, we want to pray for him. The Bible tells us to do that. God's word commands us to pray for those who rule over us, those who are in authority. And we want to pray for King Charles. We want to pray that he rules over us. Um, and we want to pray that, you know, that, that refrain that went out over and over yesterday, God save the king. That's our heart's prayer for him more than anything, that God would save him, but also that God would use him to rule us with integrity and with justice and with faith as well. Uh, you would have maybe seen, if you'd have tuned into certain uh, news channels, some news channels didn't uh, broadcast it, but there was an element of division. Some people were happy to be there and to engage in the celebration, but there were some people who weren't happy with the events of yesterday. And there was a, somewhat of a divide up and down the country as to whether we would recognise uh, King Charles as our sovereign ruler or not. Here's a, a quote from someone who was interviewed from the Anfield Rap, which is a podcast uh, that some Liverpool supporters put together. He said this, different people will have different views, but generally Liverpool is out of step with the rest of the country in order that we prefer to be a republic. Now, what he didn't say is whether he's talking about the country as a whole being a republic or Liverpool being a republic. I suspect he might have thought uh, the latter of the two. And we see maybe a bit of a, a movement of hashtag not my king outside the church on the wall. Someone's gone and uh, put a bit of artwork out there to make known their feelings about the royals. Hashtag not my king is this movement that's been growing, uh, trying to, to encourage us to come away from being a, a country uh, with a monarchy to be a republic. And to do away with uh, the monarchy. But folks, whether we agree with it or not, uh, that, that call to swear allegiance to the king yesterday, the call to submit to a monarchy, and that feeling of resistance that a lot of people are feeling at the moment, whether we agree with him being there or not, that resistance to submit speaks to something that is deep within us all. That, that reluctance to submit to someone who's ruling and reigning over us, someone who has authority over us, someone who's defining and guiding our path and, and our, our road to life, that resistance that is felt by a lot of people towards King Charles, actually that resonates with something that is going on deep inside our souls. All of us have the urge to resist the rule of another. And here's why. Because we like to sit on the throne. Like, that was a spectacular throne yesterday, wasn't it? We like to sit on our own throne in our hearts. We like to think and we are convinced that we know what is best for us. And that is true for what happens in life and it's true for what happens in death. We think we know what is best for us in life. We think we know how to live the best life now. And we also think we know what it looks like to make our own way through death. But God's word is clear. Eternity is written on our hearts. We all have a sense of that. Even if you're not a Christian this afternoon, you have a sense, a feeling of what that is. A sense that there is more to life than just this. There's more to life than just living here and then being put in a box at the end of your life. And then that's it. There is a sense within all of us, whether you're a believer or not, that there is more to life than this. 
And you feel that because there is. There is more to life than just living here and dying and being put in a box. Our creator God is an eternal God. And after death, he has made an eternal home for those who by faith have freely received salvation that is offered to them through Jesus. And that eternal home is a place of rest, a place of peace, a place of satisfaction. And that, that longing within our souls that we all feel, it is a longing for that place. It is a longing to, to experience eternal rest and experience eternal rest, uh, peace and experience eternal satisfaction. That's what we long for. And we long for it because it resonates within our soul. But folks, so often we believe that we have what it takes to make it there without God. To take hold of that thing that our soul craves without God. We so often convince ourselves that we have what it takes to save ourselves. The heart of God's word to us today, folks, confronts that head on. The truth that rings out of Jonah chapter 2 as we read it is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord, full stop. Actually, Jonah puts an exclamation mark at the end of it. Salvation belongs to the Lord, no one else. It's not salvation and this or, or and that person. No, salvation belongs to the Lord alone. And if we have any hope of finding that place and being brought into that place that our souls long for, We need to believe that, we need to submit to it, and we need to be people who receive that salvation from the Lord. Well, let's read together. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17, we're going to start there and then read through chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. You brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that this is your word for your people here today. Thank you that there is a truth that you want us to hear and there is a change that you want to effect in our hearts. And Father, you know every soul in this room. You know where we stand before you right now. And Father, we pray that we would be so convinced this afternoon that you are a God who has saved and will save. 
And we would joyfully submit to that truth. So, Father, we pray that we would rejoice in the salvation that many of us already have. But we pray that even you might grant salvation this afternoon. Father, you would do the impossible, that you would turn hard hearts towards your son. And in him, they would put their hope. Grant faith, we pray this afternoon, Lord God. And Father, we thank you that these are your words too, is that they are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So Holy Spirit, we pray as you are here now, that you would do a work amongst us, that you would change us, conform us more to the likeness of Jesus. Disrupt us where we are, are walking in, in directions that are, are away from obedience. Cause us to confess, repent and, and walk in the ways that you've set before us. But we thank you that this is truth and it is for us. And so we pray, Father, that you be glorified amongst us this afternoon. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter two here, and you'll see if you look in your Bible, just the way that it's written out, it's written as a psalm. And it is actually Jonah's psalm. It's written by Jonah. And if you know the psalms, if you know the psalms of David in particular, you can actually see that he's quoting some of David's psalms in there. He knows them presumably by memory and he's calling them to account. But Jonah's psalm here in, in uh, Jonah chapter two, it is a psalm of salvation. It's a psalm about salvation. It talks to us about what we are saved from, what we are saved to, and how we respond to that salvation when we've received it. And my hope, folks, as we journey through this book is that as a church, we would grow more and more in sharing the missional heart of God, which we said for the last two weeks is this, for God to save sinners and send, ah, messed it up, for God to save sinners and send saved sinners to save more sinners. We'll get there by week five. That is the missional heart of God. He wants to save sinners and send saved sinners to save more sinners. And, and I, I really hope that we will, we, we will grow in just sharing some of that heart over these next few weeks. And last week we saw in chapter one that it starts with us being obedient missionaries. Like Jonah blows it so much, doesn't he? He walked literally with his face directed towards the ends of the earth. He wants to get as far away from God as he can. But we saw that actually we want to be people who, who look to Jesus as our example and, and be a people who are filled with his spirit and be a people who, who push past the obstacles that we find and moving towards the lost in being God's missionaries and being people who share his missional heart. We want to move past fear. We want to move past apathy and preference and comfort. We want to take risks for the glory of God and for the good of this city and the whole world. We want to be obedient missionaries, and this week we want to be theological missionaries. Now, don't be freaked out by that. Some of you, when you hear theology or theological, you fall off your seat. But basically what we're saying is this. We want to be a people who go and a people who share. Share a message that is centred on Jesus. A message that is centred on Jesus is a message of salvation. Salvation through Jesus Christ alone. That's what it means to be theological missionaries. It means to be people who go, but not just go. Go with a message. Go with the message of Jesus Christ. Salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And it is my hope, as we just make our way through chapter 2, it is my hope that that would be a message that we are desperate to share. The message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. 
that is given to us by grace alone and, and we're brought into that by faith alone, that that would be a message that we are desperate to share, that as we go out into the different spaces and places that we are in tomorrow, in our workplaces, in the coffee shop, in our homes, as we're walking around, that that would be the message that is, that is on our lips that, that we can't not share with those around us, that we are desperate to share it. And I say desperate, folks, Because this world that we are in, the people that we are engaging with, they are sinking. Just like Jonah finds himself sinking into death. The world that we find ourselves in is full of people who are sinking, folks. Jonah, as he's in the belly of the fish, paints a vivid picture of what it looks like to reject God. Just look down in verse 2. It's a place of distress. Verse three, he is sinking into the deep. The floods overwhelm him. And those things are a picture of the the consequences of rejecting God in life. Like just as we live in the 70 or 80 years that we have, that is what it looks like to reject God while you are alive here. It is, it is a life of distress. It is a life of, of not being able to find your feet. It is a life where you are over, overwhelmed because you have no hope. And in verse 4, we get a picture of the consequence of rejecting God in death. He's driven from the presence of God. In verse 6, he is in the pit in a place where he's, he's barred in, unable to escape. And Jonah gives that place a name. In verse 2, it's a place called Sheol, which in Jewish understanding was the place of death. Don't just think that at the end of this life, folks, you're put in a box and that's it, you're done. No. God is an eternal God. He is given in our hearts a longing for eternity because we will not just expire at the end of this life, we will stand before God in judgment and we will either be with him or we will be rejected by him. And Jonah is describing in his psalm the ultimate destination for everyone who rejects God. He's describing that place as a place of death. Death that lasts. Death that continues. Death that has no end. Folks, that's why we need to be desperate to to share this good news with the world around us because that is where so many people are heading. I remember a number of years ago, um, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And when the news was shared with us as a family, it was like terrible news. Like the worst news that, that we could hear. And it was heartbreaking and it was hard But it was the news that we needed to hear because hearing that news meant that the doctors had found the cancer and that they were going to do something to fight that cancer. Now imagine if if instead of that happening, the the doctors, they do the tests on my dad and they find that he's got cancer and they they have a little consultation meeting. And imagine they, they come together and they say, do you know what? We don't want to upset this guy. We don't want to you know, make his family feel uncomfortable. So let's just take his file and put it in the cabinet and put it away. Let's not tell him. I can imagine if that's how it played out. Like that'd be reckless. That'd be selfish. That would be madness of those doctors, wouldn't it? They'd get thrown out of their jobs. Now imagine maybe they're not so reckless. Imagine they have their consultation meeting and they say, oh, you know, we've got to share something. We can't just go with nothing. Well, let's just go and tell him that, you know, he's a little bit sick. He's a bit poorly. But he can sort, you know, sort it out if he just, you know, 
I don't know, does a bit more exercise or starts eating healthier, then everything will, will be okay. Well, it's still reckless, isn't it? It's not as bad as, as the first doctors. At least there's some truth in it, but it's still not what we needed to hear. Folks, all around the world today, the church is holding on to the most urgent message. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That the only way to escape eternal death is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And folks, it is not enough for us to go out in the world and be obedient missionaries and be around the people who need to hear. That is not enough. It's not enough just to go. And it's not enough to, to go and to, and to say, you know, some things aren't right. And to say, you know, look at the world and see the brokenness around you. That is not enough, folks. The message that we are given is that salvation is from the Lord and the Lord alone. That is the message that we've been given and we need to get it out and we need to get it right. See, folks, there are some people who look out in the world and they see that people are drowning. Just like a reckless doctor, they don't want to upset them by telling them the truth. And so they water down the message and they would tell them things like this. Your goodness will save you. Okay, so, so within, within all of us, there's, there's goodness in there somewhere. So just find that goodness and you'll be all right. Like if you can just tap into that and maybe do a few good things, that will be all right. Your goodness will save you. But folks, that isn't good news because salvation belongs only to the Lord, not to your goodness. Or what about this? Your strength will save you. You know, you, you can battle through. There's going to be difficulties. You're going to, you're going to face hardships. There, there will be things that you have to contend against, but you're strong enough. Like humanity, we're, we're strong people, right? So just find that inner strength, battle through, and you'll be all right. But that isn't good news because salvation belongs only to the Lord, not to your strength. What about this one that we hear all the time? Your feelings will save you. You know, just follow your emotions. If it feels right, then it is right. If you want to find the, the best life, then just follow your feelings. And, and it doesn't matter if, if that means that there's a wake of devastation behind you. It doesn't matter if that, if that disrupts other people's lives. If it's good for you, then it's good for you. Your feelings will save you, but that's not true. Because salvation belongs only to the Lord, not to your feelings. Some people will listen to this. Your religion will save you. Like Just find that God that you can worship. Find that God that you can submit to. And that might be an actual, uh, you know, someone that you are, you are worshipping and go into a, to a temple or go into a mosque to worship. Or it might just be that energy or that higher power that, that you're discovering and you're bowing the knee to. Friends, that will not save you because salvation belongs only to the Lord, not to some sort, sort of submission in religion. And then finally, what about this one? Your work will save you. If all else fails, don't worry, because on that day, if there is a God and you have to stand before him, you just lay out all of the good works that you've done and God will be pleased with that, right? No. Because salvation belongs only to the Lord, not to your good works. These are watered down false gospels and each of them, they all revolve around this humanist lie that deep down we're all good people and we have this potential within ourselves to do good and live well it's simply not true 
And Christians, you need to know and you need to hear that that is the predominant worldview within which we live. And as missionaries, we will all feel the pressure to bend and shift and change our gospel to fit the therapeutic, individualistic world that we live. So that we don't offend anyone or upset anyone. Can I just say this? Drowning people, they don't need a pat on the back. Drowning people don't need to be told that they're good deep down inside. Drowning people don't need to hear, it's okay, you're strong enough, you'll be all right. Do you know what drowning people need? A saviour, someone who's going to jump in the water with them and grab hold of them and rescue them. That's what they need to hear. They don't need to hear these watered down thin gospels that make them feel better and give them a pat on the back and and rub them nicely. They need to hear that they are drowning and getting further and further and closer and closer to eternal death. And their only hope is to listen to this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Seven times in our passage this afternoon from verse 17 in chapter 1 down to verse 10. In chapter 2, seven times we hear the name Yahweh, the Lord. Seven perfect reminders that at the heart of the good news of salvation, it isn't your goodness, it isn't your strength, it isn't your feelings, it isn't religion, it isn't your good deeds. At the heart of the gospel is the Lord. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's nothing without Jesus. And folks, if we want to see this community and this city and the billions of people who currently are rejecting him, if we want to see this community turned upside down like Nineveh is about to be turned upside down in chapter 3, then we need to take a gospel that is centered around Jesus, not some watered down, digestible, palatable gospel. (coughs) Folks, we need to be theological missionaries, not people-pleasing missionaries. And would the Lord have mercy on us if people look at liberty and they look at us in this church and they like us. But only because we've never shared with them the truth that salvation belongs to the Lord. Would God give us a desperation to share the good news of life in Jesus? And it is good news. The psalm paints a picture of what we're saved from, eternal death, which is ours. That's the the right judgment that we deserve because of our sin. It paints a picture of of what we're saved from, but it also paints a picture of what we're saved to. Firstly, we're saved to a new life. See, note that our reading started in, in chapter 1, verse 17. And we read through to verse 10 of chapter 2. And actually, that is how in the original text, that's how this part of the book is put together. It comes together as as one unit, chapter 1, verse 17, through to chapter 2, verse 10. And the reason it's put together like that is to show us a kind of literary sandwich, right? So, So on one side, in chapter 1, verse 17, you get the fish swallowing Jonah. And, and that's a picture of Jonah being pulled into death. And then on the other side, like the other piece of bread, if that's how you have your sandwich, uh, at chapter 2, verse 10, you get the, the fish vomiting up Jonah. And really that is a picture of Jonah being given a, a second chance at life. 
So you get him moving towards death on this side of the sandwich, then him experience a newness of life on this side of the sandwich, and then the meat of the sandwich, chapter 2, verse 1 to 9, that is the psalm of salvation. So what you get is this, death, salvation, and rebirth. Death, salvation, and rebirth. And that theme, it's mirrored in the original language. If we were reading this in Hebrew, you'd be forgiven for thinking that as we read it through, the fish was actually pregnant and, um, and Jonah is being birthed out. Now, we kind of might not pick up on that, but that's how it would have come across to those who read it originally. Uh, in the grammar, now, hold on to your seat, it's okay. Um, in the grammar, in chapter two, something interesting happens. So for the whole of chapter one, the grammar is masculine. Some of you are going back to French GCSE. Like, don't go there, Neil. Don't worry. In chapter one, the, the grammar's masculine. In chapter two, it shifts to being feminine. And then for the rest of the book, it goes back to being masculine. And, and what the writer is doing, whether it's Jonah or someone else, what the writer is doing is showing us something just about the feminine qualities of, of the fish here. And actually, this idea of Jonah being birthed out, it's driven in even deeper when you look at, at um Verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. That word belly literally means womb. Okay? So there is a picture of here of, of, of Jonah inside of this, this pregnant fish. Did I say whale before? No, I definitely didn't, did I? That's okay. <laughs> inside of this, this pregnant fish, and he is birthed out. So let's go back to the sandwich. Jonah is in this place of death. He experiences salvation from the Lord and then he is birthed. He has this this experience of being reborn or we might say of being born again. That's what's going on here. Death, salvation and being born again. And folks, that is the transformation that we are desperate to see in the 10,000 people who live in this community, in the 1.3 billion people who live in this city, in the billions of people who live across this world. That is the transformation that we long to see, that we are desperate to see. We don't want to see these people just be better people, do we? We don't want to see the people of Lark Lane be nicer people. We want to see them being born again being transferred out of death by the gospel of salvation into a new life because Jesus says this, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Unless our rebellious hearts are taken out and we are given new hearts that love God and love our neighbor, we will not come into the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. But straight after that, if you know the passage, Jesus says this, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And so God sends his son, his only son, so that whoever puts their faith in him will not die but will have eternal life. Salvation belongs to the Lord. A new life is offered to all who have faith in Jesus. We are saved into a new life. Secondly, and that is a new life that is in the presence of a holy God. Jonah is in the fish. Let's not be mistaken. He is in the fish because of his sin. Because he disobeyed the word of the God, but the word of God. He rejected God. He ran from him. 
That's how he ends up where he is. And in verse 4, he rightly sees that his sin separates him from God. See, two times through Jonah's psalm in verse 4 and verse 7, Jonah feels that, like the real weight of the holiness of God. Jonah understands that no sinner finds life in the presence of a perfect and sinless God. Which is why sinners need a saviour. And it's why we find that saviour in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the perfect and is the perfect sinless God. We have a saviour in Jesus who has suffered our judgment for sin and in exchange clothed us in his perfect righteousness so that we can come into the presence of God boldly. Boldly. We can come into the presence of a holy God now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and eternally, where we will be present physically with him. And it is all his work. We didn't do anything to deserve. We haven't done anything, any good works to lay before God to say, okay, that's enough, let me come in. No, we have done nothing to earn a place in the presence of a holy God. It is all his work. You know, there's irony all over Jonah. And this is one of the, the beautiful, ironic pictures. In chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and Jonah disobeys. In this passage here in chapter 2, or at the end of Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to the fish and the fish obeys straight away. And we see it again at the end of chapter 2. The word of the Lord comes to the fish, spew him out, and he obeys straight away. All Jonah has done so far is disobey God. And he has faced the judgments of death. He has done nothing to earn his salvation. But in his mercy, God has provided him a way out. Not just to be born again, but to enjoy his presence. We are born again. We have a new life in the presence of a holy God. And lastly, in the presence of a holy God who loves us deeply. A holy God who loves his people. The idea of coming into the presence of God, knowing his holiness, should terrify us. Unless we are convinced by and covered in his love. Verse 8, Jonah talks about this idea of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's going to come up again in chapter 4. And those two words are one word in the Hebrew. It's this word chesed, which sounds great in Scouse. Chesed. And it's a picture of the enduring, active love of God towards his people. The enduring and the active love of God towards his people. Don't forget that active element. But it's enduring. <laughs> And here Jonah is saying, if you put your faith in idols, if you put your faith in anything other than God for salvation from the judgment that is sitting over you, that is coming towards you. If you put your hope in anything other than God, you will be let down. You will forfeit that steadfast love. You will forfeit that hesed. And actually we see in Jonah's psalm what God's hesed looks like. Firstly, firstly we see it as, as he hears our cry. You see that? I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. We see the steadfast Lord towards his people in that he hears our cries. Here's a, a confession uh, to you guys. So most of you know we've got two children, Ruthie and Micah. 
And quite often, it's usually Micah, I'll be honest. Quite often, they, when they want my attention, like they'll just keep saying my name. Dad, dad, daddy, daddy. Some people are going to a cartoon, aren't we? Dad, dad, daddy, dad. And, and there's something within my brain, I'm sure it's not me, there's like a button that kind of, I can hear it, but it's not like <laughs> registering. And so he can carry on saying dad. And, and it's particularly difficult when he's, when he's been winding me up or when I'm frustrated, or when I'm tired, or when he's been naughty, especially when he's been naughty, I am not inclined to respond to him. You see, in verse 2, the Hesed of God, I call out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, this place of death, I cried, You heard my voice. See, with my boy, it's like he needs to earn my attention. He needs to prove to me that, okay, is this going to be an interesting conversation? Are you just going to ask me for something? Is this, like he needs to prove himself before I engage in it. The same holy God who we offend and turn our backs to He always hears his children when they cry out. No matter what it is that we're going to say to him. He always has his ear bent towards his children. You know, we don't need to keep saying, Dad, Dad, Daddy. No, the first time we cry to him, he hears us. And listen, Jonah has done nothing to earn the attention of God. But God in his love, in his hesed, his steadfast love, he always hears the cries of his people. So there is hope for anyone who sees that they are broken, they are covered in sin and they need help. You just need to cry out to God. And he hears. But not only that, he answers. Hesed is the steadfast love of God. It is enduring. And what else is it? It is active. Jonah cries out to God in his distress and God sends help. He sends help. The fish swallows him and then spews him onto dry land. Now the good news for us folks is that when we cry out to God, he's not sending a fish. (laughs) He sends something infinitely greater. His son. He sends his son. He hears our cry and he sends his son. You know, in the New Testament book of uh, Acts, the Apostle Peter is sharing the gospel with the crowds. And this is what he says in his sermon, Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The only name is Jesus. Salvation belongs to the Lord, folks. That is the message that we are given. We go and we go with the message. Salvation that comes through our Savior who was sent in love to save his people from judgment for their sin. Through his death on a cross and resurrection from the grave. Salvation that comes freely to all who by faith cry out to him for help folks all of us this week will be involved in different conversations 
Conversations with people who are sinking. Closer and closer to death. People who are sinking and the judgment of God is sat over them. People who are thinking that they sit on the throne of their lives. People who are convinced that they can save themselves. People who are submitting themselves to one of those thin, false, pathetic gospels that will not save them. And if we're honest, a lot of the time when we're sitting with those people and listening to their stories, the last name that we want to mention to them is Jesus. There is no other name by which anyone can be saved. <coughs> apart from his. So church, let us not be like the reckless doctors who withhold hope from those who are dying. And let us not serve up some half-baked truths that just itch their ears and pat them on their back. Let us resolve to give them Jesus. A God who loves them. A God who hears them. And a God who is strong enough to save even the worst of them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we recognise that all of us are hopeless and helpless without you. We thank you that you send help for your children. We thank you, Jesus, that our help, our hope is found in you. Thank you that you stepped in and even while we were still enemies, you lived for us, you died for us, you rose again. We thank you that that for those who are, who are in you, that we are present with you now by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are found in your presence and you are here with us in the presence of a holy God. And just as we pray, Lord Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. Where for those of us that, that reality of what we have been saved from has grown cold, just, just remind us. Remind us of the judgment that should be sitting over us. Remind us of the destination that we should be heading towards. Remind us of the depth of love that has been shown towards us. And you living for us and dying for us. Rising again and clothing us in your righteousness. Lord Jesus, impress in our hearts a desperate longing for those around us to hear the good news that salvation belongs to you and you alone, for them to hear it and for them to, by faith, believe it. Impress on us a, an urgency to see the spiritual reality of those around us, to see that they are sinking and to see that this world offers them no hope. Father, it scares us. It, it, it makes us nervous. We talked about this last week. So where we're struggling, send your spirit. We know that it is only the name of your son that has power to save, so... We pray that that would roll off our tongues this week. 
that you would give us opportunity and you would give us boldness to speak. We don't just want to be obedient missionaries who go, we want to be obedient missionaries who speak. Father, just continue to share with us your heart. We're zealous for your glory, Lord. So we pray that it would please you through our feeble efforts to save. We look to you, Jesus. All our hope is in you. We praise you and worship you in your name.